Good morning. How's everyone doing? I'm so glad you made it out today. Someone asked me if we were going to cancel service. I said, not our church. All right? We're Michigan strong, right? That's right. This is nothing. That was, that was a piece of cake getting here today, wasn't it? Yeah, that's why, because you're here. And now we can make fun of all the ones that are streaming online. We love you too. We're glad that you're safe. Don't turn the, don't turn the TV off, so you're going to enjoy the service today just as well. And I think you said we're up to like 100 people, right, Kurt, back there? So there's 100 devices watching us right now, so who even knows how many people that is. So that's pretty cool. Um, glad that we have that. So thankful for the team that puts that together. And uh, today we're continuing a series of messages we started last week called Life is Not a Formula. And uh, maybe you're like me, you have my personality, uh, you're a type A person. This doesn't really drive that well with you, right? Is anybody, you're like, wait a second, who came up with the title of this message series? Go ahead, type A people, show me where you're at. Just so you know, John Crawl came up with the title for this message series, all right? So I am being stretched with you. He wrote all the summaries for this series, but it's true. Uh, so often in life, we try to you know, plan everything out, get everything lined up just the way we want it, and then, of course, life happens. And uh, I thought it'd be interesting just to start by having you just identify the formulas that you have created in your life. And so the ushers handed you a sermon outline on the, on the way, and I just encourage you to grab that. And if you could write out the formulas that you have in your life right now, the way you're just being intentional about things, what would your formulas look like? What is it that you're targeting in your life? What are you doing to improve yourself or make yourself better or, or try to you know, um, come up with a system to just take your life to the next level? Uh, in, in my life, I definitely have lots and lots of formulas. Many of you know um, I have an obsession with spreadsheets. I love Excel and uh, just all the wonderful things that formulas are our friends, the things that formulas do for us. Uh, and my wife is not so much that way. In fact, she hates spreadsheets. She hates formulas. Uh, but yet, somehow I convinced her that we should share spreadsheets on our phones. And so the technology now is you can have a spreadsheet, and when you update it on one device, it automatically updates it on the other. Isn't that incredible? All the type A people, isn't that incredible? And what you can do is you can actually put your grocery budget on there and then it'll auto-tally and it'll automatically auto-tally on the other spreadsheets so that you can kind of say, well, we want to be responsible here in order to be responsible here in order to be responsible here so that ultimately we can do these things or that we can save money here or so that we don't overspend here. And I think oftentimes when people think of formulas, they think of it in that regard with our finances and those kinds of things. Uh, even here at church, I mean, honestly, we keep track of so much data. It's kind of, to be honest with you, it's probably a little overwhelming. Uh, we have a guy on staff, that's like his job. He's like our statistician, and we're constantly looking at data, looking at research, uh, looking at church attendance, looking at giving trends, demographics of our church, and what is it that God is calling us to do, right? And so often we think, well, if we just do this, plus this, plus this, our church will grow. Or we go to church growth seminars and we go, okay, if we do this, this, and this, then this is the outcome. And I'm sure in your business, in your world, you've been to the same seminars, you've heard from the same experts. We'll just do one, two, and three, and you'll get the result that you want. And yet, somehow, that never seems to happen. In fact, God, even in his word, says that some plant, some water, but God's ultimately the one that provides the growth. And so as hard as we try, as much as we get obsessed about these kinds of things, God has a way of reminding us that he's in charge, that he is in control. 
So today, we're going to be looking at that. Uh, it's kind of interesting, um, one of the pastors, uh, he's a, he currently pastors the largest church in the USA. It's not Joel Osteen anymore, if you were wondering. Uh, his name's Greg Rochelle, he's the pastor of Life Church, and we were watching a seminar by him, and he said, if you want your church to grow, if, you wanna ha- if, you, if you're really obsessed with attendance and you're just worried about you know, getting people in the seats on Sunday mornings, here is the secret. Right, so this guy is the largest church in the world. Of course we're going to lean in because this guy is going to give us the, the, the secret, the formula to how to grow a church. He said it's very simple. You just offer free beer on Sunday mornings <laughs> and you will have a huge church. And see, that's what can so often happen, and I'll even be honest, in my own life, that's what's happened with me. I can become so obsessed in, in my work world, which is here at the church, and counting numbers and counting things and you know, trying to keep things you know, a certain way and measuring success, whether we're successful or not, by numbers and charts and graphs. And then, of course, we have a rain day like today or a nice day like today, and our numbers are going to plummet, right? There's like absolutely nothing we can do. And it's just God's way of saying, I'm in control. And that is absolutely true. I was thinking about it as well in our lives, right? Like sometimes we make formulas like this, where if I just eat healthy and if I exercise and if I get the proper amount of sleep at night, then what does that equal? Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to have good health, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to you know, have all the things that I need. Or the flip side is, like, well, if I smoke, and if I drink, and if I eat unhealthy food, well, then I'm probably going to shorten my life, right? And maybe you're like me, you read a lot of newspapers throughout the week. I was reading one just last week, and I read the story about a, a guy who's 111 years old. He's one of the very few remaining World War II veterans. He's 111 years old. He smokes 12 cigars a day. Why does the formula not work for him? And then you turn the page and you read about the guy who's like 45 years old, he's fit, he goes to the gym, he, you know, he's a vegetarian, he does everything just right, and he's running his fifth marathon, and then all of a sudden he just dies halfway through of a heart attack, right? Why doesn't the formula work for him? And that's true, life is not a formula. As much as we don't want to admit it, as much as we don't want to say it, it's true, life is not a formula, and so every day now I wake up and I have to say this to myself, life is not a formula. All the type A people say it with me, life (laughs) is not a formula. And today we're going to look at a book of the Bible, uh, Ecclesiastes, just like last week, was written very long ago in 930 BC. Think about this. It's a very old book by a guy named Solomon who had insane amount of wisdom and knowledge Uh, He was very successful, and he writes his own book, and basically he's writing this at the end of his life. So he's already experienced everything you could possibly experience, and so this guy is like the guru of information, of wisdom. He was the smartest man in the land. He was the richest man in the land. Uh, If he was alive today, people would pay tens of thousands of dollars to go to this guy's conferences, to listen to this guy's advice, to glean what they can from this guy. And so we're going to read that together today. And it's, uh, it's on page 551, before we get into our key verse. But I want you to turn to the chair Bibles that are in front of you, page 551. And I want you to imagine you're going to hear the smartest man in the world present. You're going to hear the wisdom and knowledge of a guy that has it all figured out. He's experienced everything. And he's going to speak into our lives today. So page 551, Ecclesiastes, right there starting in the first verse in the first chapter. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So he's a king. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Aren't these such incredible, encouraging words for you this morning? Aren't you glad you came here today? Aren't you glad you're watching online right now, right? This just adds to all the misery taking place with the weather that we're having. Here the author chooses to open up the first chapter, even the first paragraph, the very first sentences of his book with this depressing outlook on life. And in case you missed it, here's a quick summarization of what we just learned. Everything is meaningless. Generations come and go. The sun rises and sets. The wind does what it wants. Streams do what they want. Nothing is due. Oh yeah, and by the way, when you die, no one will remember you. I mean, you came here today for this advice, right? And you can blame God because it's his book, not mine, right? And if you keep reading the next portion of scripture, it doesn't get any better. Like I said, we, we know that he's a king and we find out that he has all this power. He actually studies and applies himself. He gains all sorts of wisdom and knowledge throughout his life. And he sums up all of this wisdom and knowledge in verse 18 by saying, For in much wisdom is much, much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, vexation, that's an interesting word. That actually means being annoyed or frustrated or worried. So basically what he is saying is the more wisdom that you gain, the more frustrating life is. And the more uh, knowledge you gain, the more sorrow you actually bring into your life. That doesn't seem right, does it? Does that seem like that's the right formula? Like, what is he talking about? The wisest man in the world, this guy that, that made it into the Bible, that God inspired to write these words, and this is not lining up with what we know to be true. And again, it doesn't stop there because in the next chapter, he tries to fill his life with what he calls all of these pleasures. And so he tries to bring laughter into his life. He thinks, oh, laughter will solve my issues. He plants a vineyard. Think about this, wine drinkers, and he drinks the wine. That'll make me happy. He builds houses, plural, not just one. He's got many houses. He even has so much money, he's able to make gardens and parks and plant trees in them. He has all of these herds and flocks and animals, all of these things at his disposal, including silver and gold. He has so much money, he can even hire men and women singers to entertain him. Wouldn't that be cool? Isn't that just odd, right? And then it says uh, that he has all of these concubines to keep him, um, to keep, to keep uh, to, for him as well. And if you didn't know this, Solomon actually had 30 or 300 concubines, which is just another way of saying girlfriends. And he had 700 wives. Imagine keeping track of that, right? <laughs> you wonder why he's so depressed in his first chapter. <laughs> Got to the end of his life, he's like, what am I supposed, to, what did I do? What did I create? 
I mean, this guy literally has it all, and he leads up to this grand finale statement. I want you to turn to, to chapter 2, verses 10. This is like his big, grandiose uh, summation of all of this. He said, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. My heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all of my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, listen to this, all was vanity, a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon, you're the wisest man in the world. We're coming to you for advice. We're coming to you for financial advice and business advice and leadership advice and relationship advice. Here you've lived this incredible life and instead of saying all of these things and do this, 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 and this, in fact, instead his formula for us this morning is that it's all vanity. It's a chasing after a win that there's nothing to be gained under the sun. The formula doesn't fit. His formula is take everything that you've worked so hard for, everything that you get so obsessed about, everything that we think is so important in this life and draw an equal sign and then in capital letters write nothing. It all equals Nothing in the end. Why? What is, it we're tr- what is it he's trying to teach us in these passages? And here really, this is really something that's important as you study the book of Ecclesiastes. One of the key phrases, and you've already heard us say it a couple times, is, is this phrase, under the sun. We've said it twice so far in verses 3 and 9, and it appears 23 times throughout this book. And the phrase really is important for us because what it does is it identifies with us and it helps us understand that he's writing these things from a human perspective. That everything that he's talking about is from a limited view of what he can see right in front of him from his senses, from his own knowledge and his own wisdom. But what the thing is, is it lacks the presence of God. It lacks the possibility of God. And so he's basing all of his knowledge, all of his assumptions based on the here and now and not what is yet to come. And really that's been the case since the fall in the garden with Adam and Eve. They desired knowledge. They desired wisdom. They wanted to know what God knew. They wanted to have his, uh, his knowledge. And so they fell into sin. They disobeyed God. And since then, we have been suffering the consequences of that because we do the same exact thing. We trust God and then we separate ourselves from God. We say that we're going to live according to God's ways, but then we begin to create our own formulas and our own wisdom and we have our own desires and we do crazy things in this life. Like this. Our formulas become this. Whatever makes you happy, ready for this? Buy it. If it feels good, oh, you've heard that one, huh? We don't have time for God, right? Are you serious? Do we really, you really want me to, you don't understand my life. The one with the most toys? Yeah. And what's mine is mine because I worked for it. I produced this wealth. I'm the reason that I have the successes that I have and I can enjoy the things that I do. And once God is out of the picture, there is no hope, there is no peace. If our aim and our focus in this life is all about the here and now, and trying to make ourselves happy, learn a lesson from Solomon that had it all. At the end of the day, at the end of our lives, it's all meaningless. We're chasing after the wind. And you can be surrounded, you can be married, you can have kids, you can have grandkids, you can think that you have friends, you can have all these things, 
And so many people, that's what happens, they get to the end of their lives and they look back and they have all of this regret, all of this, you know, just shame that comes into their lives because they realize that they wasted the opportunity to build relationships with people that were right in front of them and to build relationships with God who is constantly pursuing us. And so that's one of the questions for us today. It just goes back to verse three where it says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Absolutely incredible. But if we're honest this morning, even those of us that profess faith in Jesus, we fall into the same trap as well. Sometimes we don't always believe that God's going to take care of us. And so something happens in our lives, something comes along, and we think to ourselves, wow, now I gotta work extra hard, and I gotta take control of my destiny, and I gotta do this, this, and this, instead of going to God and laying it at his feet and inviting him into the situation and making him part of the equation. And really, if you want to do a gut check with this, if you really want to know where you're at this morning, just ask yourself, what if God took it all away? Like we studied last week with Job, with Pastor John. What if he did? What if, God forbid, he took it all away today? Where would you be standing? How would you respond in that moment, in that time, in that place? I think we would all find out who or what we actually put our hope in. I want you to think about those formulas that I asked you to make at the beginning again. Maybe you're like me and you instantly, want, you instantly went to your finances or you, know, you went to your work world because you know, we spend so much time on our work and being successful in what we do versus who we are. Did any of you by chance put in there, spend time with my spouse plus spend time with my kids equals enjoying my family, enjoying what God gave me? How about reading my Bible or meditating on God's word or praying? Because God says when we do those things, he brings us his peace. How about this one? Did anyone do this one? Churn off my cell phone? Some of you, your cell phones haven't been off for years, right? Your cell phone doesn't need, well, you would power it down and it would probably just blow up because it doesn't know what it means to be off. Churn off your cell phone plus churn off your computer equals actual rest from work. Think about that. Because here's where Solomon brings it all into perspective and he gives these little nuggets throughout Ecclesiastes. We're only gonna focus on one today. But he has all these little nuggets in, in between all of these uh, just cries from his heart, just like Job last week. I mean, they go on and on, these Old Testament writers, on and on and on and on. But he gives us these little nuggets along the way and one of them is nestled right in chapter four, verses nine to 12. Many of you are gonna be familiar with this passage of scripture and I want you to look down, Ecclesiastes 4, starting in verse nine, it says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Think about this. Coming from a guy who had everything, who spent his, old, his whole entire life pursuing so many things of the world, and yet he focuses in on the relationships and how important it is to not go through life alone, to not be an island, to not be a silo, that two are better than one for they have a good reward for their work. And that if you fall down, then when you go through hard times, that when you go through circumstances 
that if you don't have anybody around you, who's going to pick you up? Who is going to help you get through that? You know, it's interesting how even our society has adopted this whole idea of teamwork, right? Some of you, you work for GM, and I keep hearing that at GM, they took down a bunch of the offices, and now you have common workspaces, right? And maybe they've done that at Chrysler or Ford, I'm not sure. Are there other places, some of you work at places where you lost your office and you're now in a cubicle with three of your closest friends? Anybody? Anybody, right? It's kind of funny, we have kind of a situation here at church. We're adding staff, and we're out of office spaces. What do you think we should do? So we came up with this idea, right? What if we just tore down all the walls and just made it one big open area and just had one big common space for all of the staff? Don't you think that's cool? Isn't that a great idea? Do you know how much anxiety that caused with our staff? <laughs> Do you know how some of our staff are just really not that excited about moving to that kind of, I'm like, what are we, and I keep saying, well, what are we gonna do? Are people just gonna sit on the floor? Are we just gonna have people sit in cafe areas? Like, what are we, like we gotta figure this whole thing out. And I was talking to my wife, she happens to work at a salon, and she said at the salon, her owner makes them move their chair every six months. And I was like, really? I was like, why do they make you move every six months? She said, there's three reasons they do this. Number one is so that nobody is territorial about their space. I thought, that's interesting because you're the stylist. You don't own the salon. The salon owner owns the salon. Number two, it prevents hoarding. I thought, that's a really good thing, right? Some of you, you probably work with people that are hoarders, right? Um, number three, uh, it actually promotes teamwork. And so you're constantly being mixed with other people on the team. And I thought, wouldn't that be a great concept here? Is if every six months, the staff of Shepherd's Gate, we switched offices? Right, and someone said, well, how are people supposed to find us? I said, they'll walk around, they'll eventually find us, right? <laughs> Two are better than one. Two are better than one in every circumstance. Whatever we utilize as truth, we are blessed. And we know so often it's compared to the husband and wife situation behind this whole family concept that two come together and they're able to do far more than they could ever think or imagine because God has brought them together to do life together. But isn't it interesting how messy marriage can be? How hard marriage can be? How difficult the, 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 the circumstances that you face in the marriage yet every single time it's worth it. It's worth it to go through that. You know, it says in verse 11, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Well, when is it that marriages fall apart? Let's be honest, when one person doesn't live up to their end of the vows. And it's when someone usually uh, dishonors the marriage bed. It's when someone chooses the couch over the bed. Or they choose their work over their relationship. And so really, even though they're sleeping in the same bed, there's no conversation taking place. There's no investment in the marriage. There's not deposits being made into another person. The marriage bed is cold because of the intentionality of being focused on everything else other than the relationship that it should be the most important thing that God has placed right before us. And you know, the scripture isn't just for married people, it's for all of us in our lives. And it's so easy for us to get isolated, to just want to be alone, to not want people in our personal lives, to push people away, to say, you know, I'm kind of fine where I'm at, and I'm kind of fine, you know, I'm coming to church, shouldn't that be enough, you know, like, this is cool, and I talk to people in the fellowship hall, shouldn't that be enough? And we keep bringing up these sermons, and we keep doing it from different angles and reading different scriptures, and we always say the same thing over and over again. We care about you too much to just let you come to worship here. That's not what our church is about, amen? 
We want everybody to be connected to somebody else, not just your spouse, okay? Let me just clarify that. Your spouse, that if you're in a marriage, that you would be connected to other people who are married. If you're single, you'd be connected to other people that are single. And that we'd be all connected to each other. Because there's nothing more that the devil would like than to get us alone, to get us isolated, to not open up, to not have people walk alongside us so that he can trip us up. And so when we fall, nobody is there to help to pick us up. And here's the truth. I know it can be scary. I know there's a risk in going to that next step, going to that next level, joining a small group, or even being on a serving team, correct? Amen, right? I mean, who thought of the idea of these small groups where we actually meet in each other's homes? I mean, it's a little nutty, isn't it? We actually have 35 groups. I think it's, is it 35? Your husband's leading it. You don't know. 32, 35 groups. Um, and there's like 400 of adults that are in there, and they meet twice a month, all in homes, all over the place. Isn't that wild? And I can tell you this, they never have conflict. No one ever says something they shouldn't say. No one ever does anything they shouldn't say. No one ever judges anybody by their house or what they prepare the, for the food or by the wall, you know, the paint on the, right, right? We are an incredible church, and everyone just gets along. And you know that I'm lying right now, Right? <laughs> It's probably one of the messiest things we have here at Shepherd's Gate, small groups. Because you're doing life together and people say stupid things and people do stupid things. But guess what? The people that are in community with each other, they'll tell you every single time it's worth it. It's worth it because God designed it that way. In fact, it was God who left heaven for earth when he realized that we were a mess, that we couldn't do Uh, that we were really lost and confused without him and he entered into our mess, sent Jesus to the cross to die for us, to fix our mess and then he says, now you have to live in community with each other. This whole idea is his idea. He never wanted anyone to walk through life alone. And let's just be honest because that's what we do here at Shepherd's Gate. Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, Christians are just as mean to other Christians as non-Christians are to Christians and vice versa. Sometimes Christians say really, really rude and mean things to each other. Amen? Some of you, were, some of you may be here because you were at a previous church where somebody hurt you. Or maybe somebody here at Shepherd's Gate hurt you. And I bet if we passed around the mic, I bet you every single person in here could tell us a story about how somebody else has hurt them in the church. You know, it was interesting, last week uh, there was a funeral here at Shepherd's Gate on Sunday after our morning services, and it was for um, a friend of mine. His father passed away, and he and his mom and his dad have actually been coming to our church for six months. Uh, and his dad uh, has had dementia the last couple of years. He's just really struggled with his health. But yet my friend would go and pick up his mom and dad every single Sunday. His dad had to be bound in a wheelchair, and he would roll him into the uh, um, fellowship hall out here. Maybe some of you saw him. And they would either come to the 10 or the 11.30 service. And people from Shepherd's Gate, that's what I love about this church, would go up and they would talk to his dad and they would validate his dad and they would say, it's so great that you're here. And our communion servers, when it's a communion Sunday, they would go out there and they would make sure that he would receive communion every time we were serving communion. And this man was so blown away by this church and part of his dementia that Kenny told me, that my friend, that every single time that he would go over to his dad's house, his dad would always say, is today the day we get to go to church? Is today the day we get to go to church? Is today the day we get to go to church? And so the funeral last week was really tough because, um, for a couple different reasons, it's because his dad um, was one of my youth leaders growing up. He was one of my junior Bible quiz coaches. And so there was all of these people, imagine this, from my childhood here at the church, 
people who were my nursery teachers, my Sunday school teachers, my youth leaders. So I was really glad that none of you were here, okay? And this is what usually happens is the stories start coming out about Timmy, because that's what I was called, Timmy. And I was actually nervous to preach in front of all of them because I did the service because I know them so well. And it just seemed awkward. It's like me up here and I'm kind of in this you know, different role and they're all here. I mean, the place was, was pretty full. And uh, one of the couples that had been incredible mentors to me, this couple that I had spent so much time in their home and had been pouring into me, uh, before the service, uh, we, we had a viewing out there and they came up to me and for whatever reason, they were just being these really... They thought they were being funny, but I didn't think it was funny. And they were making comments and they were saying things that I just felt were kind of like inappropriate. And they're kind of picking on me for being in a Lutheran church and comparing it to, to you know, being a Catholic priest. And, and you know, and you're, you're kind of like, man, like, what is this all about? Or why are you, you know, feel like that you need to say these things? And I started getting discouraged, right? I'm like, you know, I get that maybe you're joking, but now it just doesn't seem to be, you know, funny anymore. And thanks be to God, this other woman who was one of my Sunday school teachers, she just saw me and she comes running up to me and she puts her arm around me and I, and I kid you not, she goes, oh, Timmy, this church is beautiful. I, this is amazing. I can't believe you're the pastor. I am so proud of you and this and this and that. She said all of these positive things. And that's the truth, right? Relationships are messy. People say hurtful things sometimes. I think the best part of the whole thing was after we had the service here and we went into the gymnasium for the luncheon and I saw an entire house church, an entire small group from our church that was there serving this family and all of their friends and families a meal, just offering God's grace in a practical way to this family. And again, I left here feeling so grateful to be part of this church, to be part of a community of believers that are willing to enter the messiness, that are willing to be in relationship with one another. And so if you're here this morning, right, and you're probably like, if you're like one of those siloed people and you just like stay in yourself, you're thinking to yourself, I wish I wouldn't have come today's message, right? I just want to stick to myself. Please stop pushing small groups. Please stop pushing relationships. And we're telling you, God loves you too much. Listen to the words of Solomon, the wisest guy that ever lived, other than Jesus. And he says to us, man, two are better than one. Don't go through your life and get to the end of it and realize that you missed out on what God had for you. I'll tell you one more story as I end the message today. I had the opportunity last Monday to go down to Family of God. It's a Lutheran church in Detroit with Pat, who's sitting right here. He goes down every Monday. He drives 50 minutes to get down there. And I was excited to go just to see the place and to see the ministry that they're doing and see if there's anything else that we could do to partner with them. And, uh, you know, it, it's in southwest Detroit. I mean, it's in a pretty hard-hitting area. And so we're down there and these people come in and they, and they feed them every night except for one. I think it's Saturday night, right? They feed them all the way through the week. And so uh, I was able to talk to the pastor who's been down there for 18 years and um, just being able to hear his story and what God is doing in and through that place. And I can just hear it in his voice, I can see it in his eyes, the genuine love and care that he has for people. And so after the people were fed uh, and we had a, some more time to talk, I said, what would you say is the biggest need of family of God, of your church? What is, it, what is like the one thing that you need the most? And he said, it's not money, it's not donations, he said, the biggest need that we have is for people just to come down here and to sit 
with our church and our people and validate them as human beings. I thought that was kind of interesting. Then I looked at him and I said, what's your biggest need? As a pastor, you've been doing this for a long time and, and I just applaud you at, at what you do. What is your biggest need? And he said, honestly, this is my biggest need is for people to come around me and to encourage me because this work can get so frustrating as we see drug addicts and alcoholics and dysfunctional families and mental disorders and all the things go on down the line of the things that we deal with day in and day out. And he just wants someone to come down and to encourage him and churches like ours to say, hey, we believe in you and we're gonna continue to send people. We're gonna continue to partner with you and watch what God does. He enters their messiness. And right after they were done feeding the people, they went into this Bible study together and they, and, you know, they had a group of about 12 people and I was so impressed with how the pastor led the Bible study and how the people interacted with each other and just validated each other and loved each other. See, that's what God calls us to. And I'm telling you here, if you're here at Shepherd's Gate, maybe you've been checking us out for a while, take that next step. Consider being in a group. Consider joining a service team. Begin to rub shoulders with the people of Shepherd's Gate because that's what's gonna make Shepherd's Gate strong. That's what's gonna carry us into the future. Again, two are better than one. You agree? All right, will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Father, I thank you that you have safely brought us all in here this morning. God, we just love and thank you for your amazing love and grace for us that even in our messiness that you were willing to enter into it and that you sent Jesus to fix something we couldn't fix for ourselves. And God, I thank you for this church and the relationships that we have with one another. God, you know that if there's people in here that maybe words have been said or past hurts or maybe it's past churches, God, help us to hand those things over to you. Help us to forgive one another as you have asked us to forgive because you have forgiven us. And God, begin to do a new work in our heart. Begin to help us how to strengthen our relationships with one another like never before. May Shepherd's Gate always be known as the church that, yeah, doesn't admit they have it all together, but that we are willing to lock arms with one another and to encourage each other and to continue to build each other up and recognize that even as we go through this chaotic world and this chaotic life and we're not gonna be able to figure everything out, that we have you and that we have each other. So God, we just pray, continue to do your work in and through the people of this place. It is in your son's name that we pray, amen. Will you please stand for the benediction this morning? And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. And let's sing this last song out as just a declaration of our love for God and for each other.